Welcome to Coffee with Romina. This is your host, Romina Muhammadai, award-winning leader, negotiation and sales expert, and your new favorite podcaster. Each week, we bring you inspiring stories from extraordinary people of diverse industries, sharing practical advice and tips on how to overcome career and personal obstacles, define your own success, and take charge of your own destination. Thank you for spending time with us today. Now let the show begin. Hello, my beautiful listeners. This is your favorite podcaster, Romina, and welcome to Coffee with Romina. Technically, this is the first official episode under the new name. Well, the first interview episode, I should say, because we launched an episode explaining the name change. Now, if you are used to RM Podcast FL, just a side note, the new podcast name is Coffee with Romina. If you do want to listen to the previous episodes as well as the future episodes, you can always go to connectwithromina.com as all the links, again, are absolutely functionable. Before we jump to today's interview, I want to remind you guys about the sales online course that we have launching on February 22nd. So absolutely go ahead and click on connectwithromina.com slash courses and you would be able to learn more information on it and how to up your own sales game. Since we're talking about sales, today's guest actually is a marketing and sales regional manager. Greg is the president of Learn Leadership, as well as being a very successful regional sales manager and regional operations manager for major service providers in oil and gas industry. Greg has been the assistant coach to a high school boys soccer team and Charleston Catholic High School in Charleston, West Virginia for over 15 years and had led to five state championships in the last six years. He actually gets into details of how he was able to help the soccer team reach new milestones and build new dreams for the team. The episode is named The Real Power of a Dream because the whole story has a plot twist at the end. A story so, so amazing that even made it in an international speaking event that Greg had in Tokyo. And everybody started taking notes, even with the interpreter translating the story. The whole stage was mesmerized. So, I don't want to lose any more time. I actually want you guys to enjoy the show. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review and a short comment. Did you do it yet? How about now? Oh, you want some more information to be convinced that we deserve a five-star review? Okay, not a problem. I got that for you. Coming up right away. I'll let you guys enjoy the interview. Hi, Greg. How are you today? Great, Romina. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Today, I am in beautiful Kilo Island, South Carolina. My daughter and I are here to run a race tomorrow. It's going to be, we'll be the only two runners since they canceled the race. We decided we're going to do it anyway. My my wife and business partner here with me. So you got to be somewhere. Just just assume be here. (laughs) And, And we're, it's pretty easy to socially separate. Yes, definitely. Well, I definitely want to pass on the mic to you first, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you go about the career that you have right now? Uh, Introduce yourself to the audience. Well, you know, started at West Virginia University College and thought I was going to, I planned to be an engineer and through a series of whatever it was, work study jobs, ended up in ag engineering. And from that, long story short, back in the 70s, our country didn't have a was trying to really grow the energy sector. 
and a company by the name of Halliburton introduced, uh, interviewed me. And nobody knew who Halliburton was until Dick Cheney became the CEO. And, you know, that's another whole story. But I was with Halliburton for 34 years in the oil and gas industry. We did fracking and I was, uh, uh, did a lot of uh, move up through management and into sales. And then basically I've been in the energy business for 40 years, but ended up being also because of a little company called Amway got approached and was a terrible business owner. But what they learned, what I learned through Amway, the ability to run your own business, those skills were just incredible. And I met a guy by the name of Willie Jolly, who is in the DC area. He's a hall of fame speaker. And he kept talking about NSA, National Speakers Association. And I became a member. And what I learned from that has really driven my career between the leadership skills I learned from Amway and getting involved with the National Speakers Association. I'm their chapter president in Ohio, past president now. But that really has skyrocketed my career. And we, my wife and I started our own business. I've written several books, Learned Leadership, Just the Frax Man, and a couple others. And that really got things going. And, and we've been now the last four years, I've been, our company's called Learn Leadership. We help companies develop their employees. My wife does a lot with health and wellness, but we do leadership, team building, safety, platform skills, because most people don't do very well when it comes to public speaking. Now, I've been an adjunct, an adjunct professor at a place called Pierpont Community College, so I get to work with young people. And but really changed a lot of things. That, that whole leadership ability. I've been involved with soccer since my oldest was like 10 years old. We lived back up in Ohio. And in 1996, Principal Charleston Catholic High School, where all three of my kids graduated from, asked me to be there after my youngest graduated, asked me to be their assistant boys soccer coach. And we were good but not great. I mean, they, they'd never really wanted to, I think they won one section championship in all the year. My kids had never won one. And I think they'd won one just before I became a coach. And we never thought about things like state championship. That just wasn't in our, wasn't, we weren't aiming. We didn't think we could do it. And it was really interesting, Ramina, in 1999, I went to our head coach, Bruce Rule, and I, I, and I said to him, Bruce, I said, we always talk about leadership. Mm-hmm. I said, but we never teach them anything. We just assume they get it. And that year I was working with, the, we had one returning starter and three seniors. So we didn't have much to work with. And I said to these young men, I said, gentlemen, what's your dream? Where do you want to be at the end of the season? And I'll never get this guy. Our captain's name was BJ that year. And he stands up and he looks me straight in the eye. He says, coach, we want to play for the state championship. And I looked at him and I was like, he's joking. I mean, he's absolutely joking because there's no way he that that's possible because we got to play two two really huge schools in our section and then there, yeah. if we win that then we got to go to the region and play a school we'd never beat and and I was this close for me to telling them you know you need to aim a little lower and think about in business that's why this all ties together in business what do we do higher all the time yeah I mean, and, and I had a boss that said, you know, I'd, I'd put out these great goals. And he said, no, no, no. He said, no, no. He says, because there, he said, you'll miss that goal. you got to aim it lower. And in business, the mindset was, you know, was 
the only years at Halliburton. It was better to have a low goal and hit it than to have a high goal. And, and get disappointed. It. Even if you miss it higher, you know, I mean, like, I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? Doesn't make sense. So that's, that was my background. So I'm thinking, well, you know, you got to, and I just said this. I said, we got a lot of work to do. And BJ actually convinced me that it was possible. Yeah. Together, we convinced the seniors. And then the whole team bought into this idea. Was BJ a junior? BJ was a senior. He was the one one returning starter we had. And this was was so crazy because we're this little high school playing the Giants. And at the end of every practice, I'd get the boys together. And we'd say, what's our goal? And it was maybe to beat the next team or do something. And I'd do this. I would. I would, I would scream at the top of my lungs, what's the dream? And I would jump up in the air and throw my arms up. And the whole team would scream at the top of their lungs. And it wasn't to win the state championship. It was just to play for it. And it was to play for the state title. And we went through the season. And believe it or not, ended up winning the section, winning the region. And we beat a team that we'd never beat. And we were up 5 nothing. And I'm watching this happen. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is a dream. You're going to wake up and realize that none of this happened. And I've been coaching high school for 25 years. And the only, this is the only time it ever happened. When that game ended, the entire team, Beckley High School, literally sat down on the field in place when the game ended. And it was because it was almost like, what just happened? <laughs> and in the state the neat thing was in the state tournament, we had to play another arch rival of ours that we had never beat. We tied him a few times. He'd never won the game. And we were down two nothing at halftime. I still remember my halftime speech. And it was, I looked him in the eye and I said, do you believe? I mean, cause in business, don't we got to do that? If I learned this the hard way, if people don't believe, they can tell you yes, that if it's not here and if it's not here, it's not happening, folks. I mean, yeah. it's, it, so in business, we got when you set those targets, you better believe, and your team better darn well believe they can get them. Because if they can't, they're going to tell you, "I've had this happen to me," where you know we really pushed to get something done, and the guy said, "Okay, I can do it," begrudgingly, and something came up, and he looked at me and he says, "I told you we could do that. I I didn't win the heart." Yeah. And so. At the half, I'm telling these guys, we're down 2 nothing to a team that we'd never beat. What's the odds? I said, gentlemen, I said, do you believe? And I went around to each one of them. I could see in their eyes that they really believed. And, and, and I said, you know, I just screamed, and, let's go out and do this. And it was a phenomenal second half. And I remember even at one point, BJ went down on the field. And our coach came over and looked at him. And, you know, they're working to get a cramp. And he... He's laying there and he points straight at Bruce, the head coach. He said, don't you dare take me out, coach. And everybody was tired. Everybody was sore. And I didn't need to give him a leadership talk after that. Yeah. He, he limped onto the field and with less than two minutes to go, BJ scored to go with tied the game. But here's the rest of the story. In overtime, we end up coming from behind again. A little kid by the name of Kenny scored the goal that tied it in overtime with literally one second left on the clock. And, and this is where it gets into leadership. You know, don't forget this. There's 30 seconds left in, in the overtime period. We, we had to play the whole overtime. And 
the other team, they got their bags lined up. They're ready to leave. And they just cleared the ball. Our, Col- our goalie came out, trapped it, passed it to our wing. He moved it up to one of the strikers. And BJ got the ball in front of the goal. And the clock's winding down to 10 seconds. And he passed the ball to little Kenny. And I thought of that. It took me a while to grasp what happened. It was weeks later, I realized that, and this gets back into business again, is BJ could have taken the shot. That was his dream. Yeah. They championship. He was one, he was a, a shot away from, from tying the game again. And he passed it to Kenny, a little freshman who shouldn't even been on the field because the, the starter got hurt. And he, he had developed Kenny. And that's what we have to do in the industry. We develop people. When the, if the leader thinks, I'm the leader, I know it all, you do what I say, that's not a leader. What great leaders do is they develop people. And, you know, it's fascinating is, is when I look at leadership, and I'm not getting into the male-female thing, but I will, that women seem to do a much better job at developing people than guys do. I mean, men seem to have this macho uh, general approach. Well, females more- have that, like, sister or motherhood or, you know, it's a different type of uh, feeling, you know. It really is. And, and what I've seen from women in leadership, I mean – that's there. That's a lesson that to be learned is I've watched them develop people and have greater, better teams and better results. So, you know, that's just, just a thought to ponder. And anybody can do it. It's just a matter of, you know, do you want to, but he's, he passed the ball to Kenny. He trusted enough in that, that he developed this young man. Kenny sticks it in the goal with one second left, literally. It ties the game. We go into a shootout. And in the in the shootout, they anybody doesn't understand soccer. It's a series of five guys shoot, and you know whoever gets the most goals wins. Our goalie had saved one goal. We have our senior, a guy by the name of uh, Nathan Keister. He's a doctor now. There's a real, yes, Kenny's a doctor also. It's great, amazing what these young men do after the fact because I couldn't see him. And in the shootout. Nathan is the kid that he comes to us and he said, "Look, coaches, I'm a senior." I'd really like to be one of the five. And he's the fifth guy. Our goalie saved one. All Nathan's got to do is stick the ball in the net and we win mm-hmm. the game. And he does. And we go to play for the state championship. And the next day we lost. We lost big time because they had achieved their dream. And I'm looking at these kids and they'd wore, they were wore out because of the night before. And I'm, I'm saying, do you believe? And I'm looking in their eyes, Romina. And it's like, the lights are on, but nobody's home. <laughs> But the key was that year, the fact that we could play for the state championship, changed yeah. everything for the last 25 years. I mean, that's how you talk about one young man's dream has changed countless lives, literally, and I'm talking about around the globe. Because when I tell the story, I was telling it to a Chinese group through an interpreter. Well, they got it. I mean, they sent me pictures. I've got this picture of a soccer ball, but that group influenced people halfway around the world. They didn't even know it. But here's the rest of the story, though, that, that when, when we do things, this whole leadership business, you don't know where it's going to go. It was April 2012, coming home from work. I've been in, uh, out of time for the day. And we're going to a concert that night. And my wife had called me from work, and she said, you know, she's on her way home. Got home, took the dog out, and I get this phone call. And... The gentleman said, uh, it wasn't my wife. And he said, I'm calling from your wife's phone, Greg. She's uh, 
Been in a little accident here in downtown Pinch, which is, I live in outside of Charles, but Pinch is a really small town. And he said, she, she, she's okay, but she's, you might want to come down here. So I'm thinking, okay, must have had a little fender bend, no big deal. Went down to the bottom, literally at the bottom of my hill. I mean, it's like a quarter mile. So mm-hmm. I get out of the bottom of the hill and there's this crowd gathering. And I look and there's my wife in her car and it's on its top and it's in the middle of the road. And you want to talk about feeling helpless. There's nothing I can do. I can't go over the car. I can't talk to her. I can't do anything. And it's like, I have no idea how bad she's hurt, but it's not, you know, it's not good when you're in a car and on top. And thank God the fire department was literally like, you know, you could hit a, you know, hit a driver and hit the fire department. So they were right there. And got her right. And she, what she had done, she's a diabetic. And that's why we were into, we do the wellness thing. Because that's such a debilitating disease, but she... It is. My father has it. My father and my grandpa. So, yeah, I... I, You know what I'm talking I can't relate. So, her blood sugar had actually gone low, and she passed out. And she was downtown in our little town, Mm -hmm. and she took a 3,000-pound super outback. And in the span of about 50 yards, I guess when she passed out, she hit the gas. And she put that car airborne. And she took out a street sign and she went through a utility pole six feet off the ground. I mean, she, I didn't know you could get that car going that. She got some skills. It was really skill. I was amazed that she could do (laughs) (laughs) that. And so she, I mean, she, I didn't know that until later that she'd knocked that street sign out and and went through that utility pole. She hit a little hill and rolled the car multiple times. And that car, she got in all four sides. And the top, obviously, it was unbelievable. So she in in the but because she had her seatbelt on, because of the airbags, she had a gash in her head where something had hit her. And thank God the fire department was close to; they could take care of that. But she broke her neck. I mean, just from the force of the the crash was that And I'll never forget it. Sunday morning, this was a Friday night. Sunday morning, she's in the hospital. She's in ICU, and she, you know, she's she's got some bruises and whatever and and she's all got all this stuff paraphernalia all the the, you know the ivs and the electronic monitoring things and she can't move she's and it's eight o'clock sunday morning this team of doctors comes in Romina, and you know how doctors are that's like low low whispers and they're you know just their and, white coat just gives you a little. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah. They're, Especially they're if you see a couple not, of them, you're like, oh no. <laughs> it's not like, hey, how's everything going? It's something well, it's a beautiful day. So they're doing this. And as they're leaving, and my wife's been hanging around with me for 45 years now, but she says that she just can barely talk. And she says, and the head trauma doctor has to come over. And he's got to do this. He's got to put his head down. He says, yes. And she says this. She says, we have a trip to Disney World planned for the middle of next month with the grandchildren. Is there any reason I can't go? <laughs> and he loses it. He's like, oh, he starts laughing. And he looks at me and he says, well, he said, it might be a little uncomfortable if you're driving. And I said, well, I got plane tickets. He said, no problem. And I know I'm from Pittsburgh. I know my relatives. If if I'd have said to any of them, if that would have happened to them, 
they just said, sell the plane tickets, cancel the condo. <laughs> We're not going. You got and a strong one. She does, she's not a quitter. She's not. And it gets but it gets better. Uh-uh. As they're leaving, uh-huh. I recognize one of those doctors. And this young man looks at me and he says, Oh my God, don't tell me it's the soccer. He says, coach. Do you remember me, coach? And I said, Nathan, I'll never forget you. 1999, 12 years old. He's the kid that scores the goal that puts us in the state championship game. And he, now get this, he understands the power of a dream. He understands what it takes to get to a state championship game. And I said, Nathan, I'll never forget you. And I said, should I call you Dr. Kister? And he said, well, I am Dr. Kister. You can call me Nathan, coach. But guess who my wife's doctor is on the floor that week? Dr. Nathan Kister. And guess what? That was Sunday. Monday, he knows her dream. I had to go to do side to get a uh, like a neck, neck thing for her. So I, I was gone. I come back. It's five o'clock and her bed's empty. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And I mean, you know, did they take her down to surgery? What's going on? And I, I, I panic. I walk out in the hall. And here's my wife. She's walking or in the way? Dr. Kister's with <laughs> and she's And she's walking down the hall. Can I just <laughs> say I love your wife? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> And, and I got a picture of her one month later in a wheelchair with her neck brace on with our oldest granddaughter in front of the haunted mansion at Walt Disney World. Now that, folks, is the power of a dream, but who would have known? And, and, you know, you go back. And I said, what if? What if I just told BJ Aim lower? What if there'd have been no state championship game? Would Nathan have still been a doctor would if he when things got tough would he have given up yeah because our team never ever ever quit would his attitude have been the same and you know even linda when she 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 goes to all the games i mean she understands this stuff too would she have said why can't i go to disney world i mean so you know sometimes in our lives for me you know one little incident can change the path yeah it really does. And, and so, you know, I mean, who's, what's the odds? What's the odds that Nathan would be her doctor? And guess what? Today, he's her thoracic surgeon. I mean, he, he's actually done surgery on her since then. <laughs> so we know him. And we, he's got a family of his own. He's got kids. And, and we see him. And it's like, you know, what's the odds that here's this kid that now 20 years later is her doctor? <laughs> so that's the power of, really the power of a dream. But what that does, how that ties into the rest of the story. Finally, and it takes us sometimes in 2016, I, we, we had this business. We, we started it when, particularly when I read the second, when I wrote the Just Frax book, so in, in uh, 12. But I didn't have the guts mm-hmm. to leave my job. I mean, it was like, the job's there. It's safe. You know, you can go Secure on vacation. Income, it's the yeah, you go on vacation. There's checks in the bank. It's all good. Oh, it's scary. I went through that. I actually have my resignation letter framed right here as a motivation. Well, see, I didn't have the guts to do what you did. Yeah, it took me about eight months, though. Well, that's like finally do it. (laughs) What I did, and I, I was the, I led the region. We, we went through our company. I left Halliburton and went and uh, wanted to be a motivational speaker. And then I realized, 
this is back in 2008, that I was leaving the one industry in 2008 that would make a significant difference in my family's life because yeah. we didn't have energy. We had the energy crisis of the 2000s and 90s. We didn't have energy and we were, we were dependent on the Middle East for our oil. And I'm thinking, I'm going to leave the oil and gas industry that has the, the best chance of fixing this problem. I'm going to be a motivational speaker. And I figured it wasn't quite time. And lo, lo and behold, I made that decision. The next day, this guy calls me. He says, Greg, he says, we're starting a drilling company in Pittsburgh. Do you want to be the Eastern sales manager? So I did that. And long story short, ended up going back in, went, for, worked, uh, went back into the frack side of the business as a sales manager in marketing. And then in 2016, I thought, well, geez, everything is great. I mean, the industry's struggling, but but I'm, you know, I'm I'm, I'm leading the, the region in sales. I mean, you know, I'm kind you of still bored. had that dream or that motivational speaker and the thing in the back of your hat, huh? Yeah, I do, and 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 I really, but all, but the thing is, what I'm doing, everything I did with those young men, I was doing with our sales team, and for years, even the years at Halliburton, I mean, all that stuff, our teams were incredibly successful because of the attitude because of the leadership that I could pass on to them. But in 16, my, my boss, who was actually an employee from my one time, they, we went through some restructuring and he got the manager's job in Pittsburgh, which was fine because I didn't want to go back there. And our house was almost paid off. <laughs> who wanted to do that? And he says to me, he says, Greg, he says, we're having breakfast. And he says, Greg, he says, this is Houston's decision, not mine, but I'm going to have to let you go. He said, you know, times are tough. And I, I laughed. I said, thank you. Because I needed that. Yeah. Boost. And I'll feel even, I got a nice severance package. But three months later, the company goes bankrupt. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> other people have to make decisions for you too, though, because you don't have that, you know, that push, no matter how motivated you are, no matter. Sometimes exactly. people have to just make that for you. And that's what happened. I came home. I told Linda, I said, the best thing just happened today. She said, well, I said, I got laid off. <laughs> I said, now, now we can do, I've been in the energy industry for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Now we call the shots. We yeah. can finally start to make money for ourselves. We made millions for our employers. Now, now we can do it for ourselves. And it was tough. It took about six months, but through some industry contacts and one of my friends in the oil and gas industry, she works for energy education. We talked about having a meeting and just getting everybody together and do some PR work for the oil and gas industry. And at that meeting, a gentleman approached me and he said, Greg, he says, we're starting an economic development initiative and we need someone to do our marketing. Would you be interested? And it was Shell Crass at USA. They were only a few months old at the time. And in fall of 16, I became the marketing director for Shell Crescent USA. And our goal is to uh, started by business and community leaders. And the goal is to let the world know that mm -hmm. West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, that region has got abundant natural gas because nobody knew. And literally my wife and I were in Tokyo. And that's a, that whole trip is a whole, we could have another hour of discussions on the Tokyo trip, which was phenomenal. But and where, can you imagine? Uh, we started that. And the ability to aim high because now I was totally unencumbered. I mean, it's all me. I mean, on our business side, what we're doing on the training side is doing okay. But when we actually went to a place, the world, I mean, the World Petrochemical Conference, I, mm -hmm. I, I approached the, the executive committee and said, this is where we got to be at Shell Crescent. We got to be at this world conference. 
and they they didn't have much money, but they threw it. They went all in. We became a sponsor. And to give you an idea of the power of the dream, they spent 30 grand to go to that conference. And we learned a lot. We had one lead. 30 grand. But how much one, did that lead convert to? That's what's really cool. We had we knew that our our goal was to market to the top energy users. Yeah. With about a hundred. Fifty of them were at this conference. And so we divided it up and I had seven companies that my goal was to talk to those seven companies somehow, mm-hmm. find them. The last day of the conference, I get on the elevator at 428. This gentleman gets on the elevator at 426. He's got a badge on. That's one of my seven. And I said to this gentleman, I said, I made some small talk because he was from the Pittsburgh area. So I made, since I'm from Pittsburgh, I've made some quick comment. And I said, Chris, did you know that Shell Crescent, USA, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, has the cheapest, most abundant gas in the industrialized world? And he said, no, I had no idea. And I said, would it be okay if I called on you after the meeting? And he said, absolutely. Whips out his business card. That was the only lead we got. It was the only time I saw the guy. We got off the elevator on floor two. He went one way, I went the other. I never saw him again, except two weeks later, I'm in his office with another one of our guys. You took elevator pitch to a whole nother level. Exactly. And it really literally was an elevator pitch from 26 to two. We got the business card, got the meeting. And we, we learned from those folks was enough to, to get us to do our first study with big company, IHS Market. And what IHS Market did, they looked at our region. And this guy calls me in October of 17. And this is really important for your listeners because here's, here's the power of this stuff. This guy calls and he says, Greg, he says, we thought Shell Crescent might have a slight advantage over the Gulf Coast. He said, we had no idea it would be this big. And their study showed that our region, if you built a major petrochemical plant in the Ohio Valley, let's say Pittsburgh, Ohio, West Virginia, we were four times more profitable than the Gulf Coast because the feedstock is there, the energy, natural gas. And, and what's really important, a lot of people don't understand, they think of natural gas as energy, and it is. Mm-hmm. But what's really important is the feedstock, our computers, the shirt, you know, the you name it, the, the paint Everything. on the wall. All come from petrochemicals. Petrochem- and these people want to talk about renewables and the hard fact is is wind solar are fracking products you can't have them without oil and gas and fracking i mean so anybody says we're going to get rid of oil and gas and we're going to go to renewables i'm thinking no you're not unless you're going to be you know unless you're going to you know sun yourself during the day but don't plan on a windmill solar panel or an electric car which is 70 percent petrochemicals so that's the hard information that the average individual does my pharmaceuticals any pills we take petrochemicals oil and gas fracking that's how basic that stuff is so long story short what they're telling us is the oil and gas is here the raw materials here but we didn't know that i just did is 70 percent of the people that make stuff out of that material the 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 converters, the, the manufacturers, 70% of people use polyethylene, polypropylene are in Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And it was like, oh my God, we literally, the only place in the world, that little section of the United States, yeah. which is now 35% of the natural gas in the United States comes from that region, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And if you made that a country, those three little states, we would be the number three natural gas producer in the world. Oh, wow. That means is 
USA is number one without Shell Crescent, Russia number two, Shell Crescent number three, and Iran, China, we too, that little region produces almost twice as much natural gas as the higher, entire country of China. So long story short, we're sitting on this gold mine and nobody knows until, and that was where the ability to aim high, learning from my soccer experience, there are chairman, Mark said, well, Greg, you can get us on the main stage at the World Petrochemical Conference with this, can't you? Well, I looked at him and said, Mark, I said, you have no idea. I said, you don't just buy your way onto the main stage. I mean, that's, that's a coveted position. I mean, you don't just walk in there. I mean, you got that's, that's impossible. And I, and I stopped myself and I go, oh my God, wait a minute. Impossible. Places they came back. Linda's walking. And since that time, by the way, we've won 16 regional championships. The last 13 in a row we've won. Eight state tournament, state finals. So in other words, we've been in the, we've been in the championship game eight times since 1999. Yeah. And won five of them. So here's this little high school that for the last 13 years, their mindset is, well, we win the regional championship, we go to the state tournament, we play for the state championship. What's the problem here? <laughs> I mean, that's their whole mindset. That's that yeah. winning mindset. And so I'm thinking of all this and I'm thinking, okay. Let's do it. And through a series of events, we did it. We were on yeah. the stage at the World Petrochemical Conference talking to major companies. And all of a sudden what we did, what we didn't realize, we flipped the world. Because for the first, for the last 75 years, the Gulf Coast, has been the most profitable place to build a petrochemical plant. And we, in front of 1,500 executives from all around the world, stood on stage and said, that's not true anymore. And here's why. It wasn't us saying it. It was IHS Market saying it. Yeah. And that literally has changed everything. And what we, where we are right now, now what we're doing, our goal is to bring jobs to the region. And today, because of that advantage, Romina, we can bring manufacturing jobs back to this region. It's, it's, it's more economic to manufacture here. How many jobs are we talking about? We're talking about a, uh, the American Chemistry Council ran a study. And if we fully develop it, we can bring 100,000 jobs back to the region. 100,000 jobs, 100,000 families, a lot of state tax income, a lot of benefits. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's not a few jobs. And these and these are these are major jobs. These are high wage jobs. The average petrochemical manufacturing job is about ninety thousand a year. My students start when I'm at Pierpont, and here's why this is so powerful for us as a nation, because it's the hope that these young people. We've got an opioid problem, Mm -hmm. certainly in our region. We do, and we're this is the best way to work on it because my students know that if you graduate in May, I get them for the leadership class in in fall. They graduate in May. And stay drug free. They yeah, sixty thousand yeah. dollar a year job waiting for them. I mean, that's a pretty good motivation. It, and and it's done. It's worked. And they've all they've all done that. I've, I've met some of them in, in the industry now. And I asked them. I said, I said, okay, folks. So what are you going to do with that sixty grand? You're making minimum wage right now. They're all uh, work. Don't tell me buy a car or what do they well, say? Well, you're 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 almost right. This is West Virginia. Okay. It's not a car. Truck. Pickup truck. And they know that. Buy me a 1794 while you're at it. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> they know what they want. 
And the, now the next one, what do you think the next one would be? Well, I would say either a ranch or some good em- guns. Well, close. It's at the house. Okay. So they well, want like a house, truck. a ranch, you know, like yeah, that yeah, pick up, yeah, because they're West Virginians. It's a house. So they want a pickup truck. They want a house. They they, they want to get married, have kids, and somewhere yeah. else doing that. The third one surprised me. It's West Virginia Mountaineer season football tickets. But can you see how that drives the economy? You get a bunch yeah. of young people in their 20s that are buying houses, having families, buying furniture, buying football tickets, going to football games. What's it's it all about, honestly, it's all about visualization. Like as of we're talking right now in front of me, I have a picture of an empty land with two emojis of a house for 30 acres. And this is what I've written on it. Okay. Like it's in front of me every day. It says, this is what I want, a Tundra 1794, a boat, a successful business, my family being healthy and happy, and I have the emoji of, like, says, I'm not asking for too much. So this is literally. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love your attitude. That Let me is see so if cool. I can get, oh, there we go. That is so cool. This is literally in front of me every day. Oh, I love it. That is awesome. So the big house is mine. The second house is for my parents. That's, that's and, you, and you know what I love about what you're doing, and I think that's what drives us too. It's not just about you. It's about someone else. Yeah. Great. And that's what I, what I love about my wife says Chef Crescent's consumed you, and it has, because it's not about us and jobs. It's about us. It's about But I feel what like for other people. So something that I've been going through recently, um, I just feel, and people don't talk about this too much. I've tried to do online research too, and I try to reach out to other people, but entrepreneurship gets lonely sometimes. Like no matter how many friends you have around or no many, you know, your family, your loved ones really love you or your partner really loves you. But sometimes like entrepreneurship gets really lonely because you're like always going, going, going. And you feel like you're just in another area, another bubble. It's like, I don't even know if I can explain myself. But if you have such a thing, especially last week, it was like two days that I just felt super lonely. But having that, what I, because we're talking about it's not just about you, having that, it pushes me. Like, look at my parents' face, like, yeah, I cannot just sit here and, you know, complain and cry about this when I'm doing this also for them. It's not just about me. Like, it's, it's other motivations, because if you just try to be, do it about you, you're not going to be able to, you know, you're not going to be able to succeed as much, because it just, it, you will drain yourself. You need to do it for somebody else, too. You need to think other people with you, because it also, it's more enjoyable when it's a team, you know, when it's all of y'all going towards something. That's how I so, look at it. No, you're right. I, I, I think you're so spot on. You absolutely are. So I have a question. If you can choose three fundamental leadership skills that everybody should learn or everybody should have, because I know we have weaknesses, we have strengths, and sometimes we try to work on all our weaknesses and end up doing a more of a mess and actually improving ourselves. But what do you think would be three really fundamental leadership skills that everybody should have, even on business or in life? I think the three most important, one, we have to be able to communicate. Okay, I mean, communication no skills. how smart we are, if you can't communicate, if I can't articulate what I what needs to happen, mm-hmm. as a leader, you know, the ability to, to say, here's the dream, folks. Come with us. Follow mm-hmm. me. So we have to be able to communicate. That, that's, that's so essential. And, and 
that can be a lot of different ways. Some people can communicate, and we, we always think about talking, but I think communication, more importantly, is about listening. It's about understanding. It's about, I throw the question out, but now I want to know, I really want to understand who you are and where mm-hmm. you're coming from. And, and, and really in communication, you have to be, as a leader, be open enough that your people will come to you and say, I'm concerned about this. You said this and I'm not sure I understand that it's possible or whatever. And, and I, I used to do this with my leadership team because I know I'm not the brightest bulb. And I needed to know that if they're going to, and that's the, the great thing about leading a nonprofit is, you know, it, it's totally different. If you're a manager, if you're a boss, and you say go, they have to go, or you can fire them, maybe. Or yeah. Bad, bad things. So what I was always concerned about when I became a regional manager is, are they doing this because they think it's right, or are they doing it because I, I they told think them it's to. Idea. So I would, what I would do, just to make sure, every once in a while, I would throw out some really stupid idea. And it would be just dumb. And they would look at me, and I'll never forget, my assistant would say, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, no, I don't want to do that at all. I just want to make sure that you guys so you are. You guys are now just I mind mean, following I, me, yeah. I just, so I had to just make sure that, okay, uh, that, you know, because they, and they finally understood that I wanted, if it was a dumb idea or if it didn't make sense, I needed them to bounce, to come back to me and say, no, that doesn't make sense, Greg. Here's why. So we have to be able to, and we have to be willing to accept that. In other words, we have to accept that the best thing we can do as leaders, and this is the next part, you have to communicate, you have to understand people, and you have to understand talent. And one of the challenges I had is I worked for the last few years. That's why I was really glad to get laid off. The VP of sales and marketing was in Houston. And he, I, I don't know that he'd been to a sales training course or even been to any at, updated you know he didn't been any other educational things maybe in 20 years so i got all these great ideas i'm going to, through nsa i'm going to to conferences i'm understanding you know you're continuously developing and getting new skills yeah. yeah so i have these great marketing ideas and i said to him one day i said what are we going to do for marketing this year Jim? yeah and he said marketing he says i mean you go out and knock on doors and your team does I mean, the guy had, he was totally clueless. And so everything I did, I had to do it on the QT. Yeah. <laughs> I would implement things because I knew if I went to him, he'd, have, he'd say no, or yeah, that didn't work, or, you know, he had no idea. So the challenge was he was not open to uh, the smart guy. If he'd have been really smart, I probably wouldn't have got laid off, and that would have been, that would have changed my life in a very negative way. But if he'd have been smart, he'd have looked at his team and said, you know, I got this guy. He's probably smarter than me in sales. And I want to use And I think that's what we have to be. Sometimes it's the ego, though. Like, you cannot be better than me, so. And you got to park that ego. And I think that's the, the part of the, to develop people. That's the goal. We need to be able to put a team together. We need to, and the team, when I put a team together, doesn't matter whether it's athletics or business, mm-hmm. is I don't need five Gregs. I got one. That's all I need. The other five or six or seven need to be diverse. We need a whole different set of skills. 
And give me an idea, when I was a uh, regional manager, there was a lady, she was my secretary, and I watched her ability, and she was kind of like almost mentoring me. And I said, Charlene, I'm going to move you to office manager, and you're going to be on the leadership team. And she was like, and the guys really, really balked at that, to have a woman on the leadership team. And they, they fought me on it. They lost that battle. Because what I loved about it, because we all fought as guys, we fought one way. And she always was communicating to the employees and had their trust. And we'd come up with some, something and she'd say, guys, did you really thought about it this way? Yeah. And she really, I mean, we needed that diversity on our team. And that's why when I see the greatest teams are the ones that have diversity. Sometimes it's age, sometimes it's culture, sometimes it's ethnicity. It doesn't really matter. But that diverse team brings together different ideas. And as a leader, you've got to be willing to be that facilitator. And you don't have to be the idea person. You need to facilitate. You need to bring everybody together. Just mastermind behind the scenes. Yes. And at the end of the day, what I loved about it is what I knew I could do is constantly i didn't need the praise they needed the praise they needed the praise they needed the encouragement yeah and my i won because the team won as the leader if the team wins you win so my boss didn't need to know how great greg was that, that didn't there's no problem at all i wanted my boss to know and some of them, these people on our team were from different uh, parts of the company yeah. anytime i could get someone on the team and i'd send his boss and his boss's boss a letter say we have Joe. Joe just did this for the team. Wow. He's awesome. I did something for Joe. Joe couldn't tell his boss how great he was. I could do that. So that's the ability of a team to be able to put those things together. And I think the other part of that, so we get the ability to understand people and build so, Yeah, we have open communication skills, people skills. And, and, and then you got to have an attitude. And you got to have an attitude that's positive, that's winning, that when everything goes to heck, when COVID hits, everybody says, oh my God, what are we going to do? You look for opportunity. And that's what we did at Shell Crescent. When COVID hit, it's like all of our leads come from these big conferences, but they're yeah. dead. You can't, it, you can't get a lead. I haven't figured out how to get a lead from a virtual conference. I can't talk to anybody. And even if you do, it's not the same. It's not, yeah. So, but what we did do is because of our speaking skills and we, we, we looked at what we had going on in the region and we reached out to our media and the, the whole, they were looking for guests during the pandemic that could talk about the pandemic, articulate it well, and be entertaining, be good guests. And our message was, has the pandemic shown that, made in America is essential to our economy. That was the message. And we put that out in March. And I work with a firm in Florida that does this. They're they're a super bunch of folks. I've been with them for 10 years now. And they put this pitch out there on a Friday night. And he calls me Monday. He says, Kazera, we got six hits. And these weren't little knicky-knack, you know, Fargo, North Dakota type things. They were you know, we've been in Boston, New York, Charlotte, Miami. Uh, we've been, we have a station in Tampa. We're on them on a regular basis. 
and then Chicago multiple times, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Denver, uh, St. Louis, and then West Coast stations. And we were on Jimbo Hannon twice, nationally syndicated. We were on First Light, Mike Toscano out of D.C., heard on all 50 states, comes on at 5 a.m. live, and then they rebroadcast it. And I'm thinking, we're going to have a few minutes, maybe 30 seconds. You know, yeah. I'm working that much. It was an hour-long interview with Mike on a Friday. And he said, he's asking me these questions about, you know, manufacturing. And I'm telling him why we can bring it back here. Why yeah. we are no longer, our manufacturing costs, everybody thinks labor in Asia is cheap. It's not anymore. As a matter of fact, we've got numbers from Boston Consulting that shows that our labor costs and theirs are the same virtually because we have advanced manufacturing, robotics and all those things. So labor costs are the same. Our energy is a whole lot cheaper because it's here. They got to get it from the Middle East and the market's here. So because of that, we actually are the best place in the world to manufacture, not China, not other places in Asia. So I'm putting this out there and Mike stops and it's a recorded interview system. I feel really bad. He said, I think I should know this stuff. And he said, he said, I have I had no idea. And yeah. I said, right, most people didn't. We got, can you imagine our little show crescent USA, Marietta, Ohio, Parkersburg, West Virginia? We got 15 minutes on first watch. Nice. <laughs> national, coast to coast. So we've done half of those shows that we were on 60 plus radio shows, half of them were nationally syndicated. We got our message to the world. We did not, if it wasn't for COVID, we'd have got some coverage, but not to what we not did. This. And so, so that's, that was an opportunity that we found. We looked for the, and so leaders have to have that attitude, A, that we can win. Because if I'm the leader and I don't think we're going to win, we ain't win. It ain't happening. So you that's look at an obstacle as an opportunity. Like, how can I convert this to something new, different, and still efficient? Exactly. So that's the mindset is the, you, you got to have a great attitude. You got to mm-hmm. have a positive attitude. You got to have a vision that, that is high that people want to follow. So your attitude and your vision are really important as leaders, great communication and the ability to understand people and be able to put a great team together. Those, those are the three that I see. So I also wanted to ask you regarding the books though. I think the books are a really great strategy to promote yourself because let's be honest, people don't make millions out of books unless you're like a very super crazy talented with high fantasy <laughs> author. That's a whole nother story. Uh, yeah. Those are rare. But why did you write the books? Did you try to get your message more across or was that a more of, I'm going to get my message across. I'll put my name more out there. And if that was the case, how did that help you on your own career? Oh, that, that's, that's, that's really a great question. When I became a member of the national, I'd been, toying with writing a book for years. But when I became a member of the National Speakers Association, when I went to my first national conference, mm-hmm. there was a, they had a meet the pro session. So I wanted to know, how do you write a book? What do you have to do? Yeah. And I'm sitting at this table with eight other people. I'm the only one that doesn't have a book. I'm thinking, oh my God. So I thought I, it was cool. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, so working through NSA, I understand how to write a book, but I also got involved with a mastermind group, a group of folks mm-hmm. from our chapter in Ohio. And one of the commitments I made to that group, I said, I'm going to write, have you a chapter every Sunday. I don't know if it'll be any good, but we're, so anyhow, that group motivated me and I'd be up, sometimes it was 11 o'clock and I realized I didn't send them a chapter. So I would literally 
right, it would be two o'clock in the morning, but I'd get that chapter to them. Yeah. So that was huge. Anyhow, the first the leadership book came out because we had all these ideas on leadership and it was really important to get that out there. So that was the first book. And, and to your point, yeah, it didn't sell a lot of copies. It, it's done okay. But more importantly, it went to places I couldn't go. And even our business changed because- It's like you're spreading your babies out there. Yeah. Go, my daughter meet people a, I cannot meet. Just right. go, go spread the good word. Well, my daughter had a copy of the book. She shared it with someone who shared it with someone who shared it with someone. I get this one line email from a lady and she's in Baltimore. And she said, Mr. Kazar, I read your book. Do you speak? And I was like, I didn't even know her. And I ended up doing a program for them. Even at Halliburton, after I left them, my book, I gave it to a friend who gave it to a friend who gave it to a friend. Again, get an email. And she said, we're doing a leadership program. Yeah. Would you be interested in coming and talking to our folks? So Halliburton, big company. And I had a chance to, so, so to your point, and the books do give you credibility. I mean, that's, so it does two things. Credibility, it's really a business card. There's things that I can give to a client or give, I mean, I was amazed how many people that, you know, you can it's, give them. I think it's like the access card to bigger and better projects. It is. It, 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 it's huge. And then in, in 12, I said to my wife, I said, I need to do another book. And I was thinking about doing another leadership book. And she, she, my, Linda looks at me, she says, well, what are you really passionate about? And I said, well, babe, I said, we're hearing all this bad stuff about fracking. And I mm -hmm. said, it's been around since 1947. I said, I know the truth. I know what I'm, because what happened was all that, all that stuff people hear about fracking, most of it's not true or it's half true. And what happened is when I was in the oil and gas industry, we, we heard this negative stuff about fracking and we laughed. We said, nobody is stupid enough to believe that because <laughs> it's not true. As engineers, we know that. And they did because nobody went out. I mean, it's kind of like if somebody says something bad about us, if we don't say anything, then the assumption is it's true. Yeah. So the industry didn't come out and rebut any of it until it was too late. Until that, you know, once those ideas get planted, it's really tough. So I wrote a book, Just the Fracks, about the truth of hydraulic fracturing. And that was, that book literally, the first book took a year to write. Mm -hmm. The fracture book took four months. And if she hadn't had her car accident, it would have been done in three months. I mean, so it was, I was that passionate about it. So that's where, and then I've done some other stuff since then. Uh, I'm ready to like write another leadership book if I can. So uh, let, let me ask you about Linda a little bit, because she seems like she is a go-getter and an alpha personality, like not a quitter. How, how important is it towards having, you know, a pusher and a motivator uh, next to you on a partnership, even on life, because on business we get it. Like it's a partnership, you know. You need to do to do good. But how about in life? If if she wasn't as a go getter or that have that crazy awesome attitude, uh, do you think you'd still do as many things as you've done? No, I think your point. I think a life partner that is and we're we're the same when it comes to values. Yeah, we agree so aligned on values. But in most other areas, we are diverse. Mm -hmm. I complete her, she completes me. There's things that uh, she'll push me to do and vice versa. That, uh, so I think it's really important that we have different skill sets. And 
and that helps, but she's, and probably my attitude's driven her some, and then she'll come back, and you know, if I'm not in left field, she'll bring me back down. She'll say, well, did you really thought about this? Or So, and she's very honest. I mean, anytime I think I'm really great, she'll say, take the trash out. I mean, you know, she kind of keeps me on that. So it really is important that I think we have a life partner that isn't the same. And we don't always agree. But yeah. We're able to well, yeah, of course. But I think that's, um, we do tend to drive each other. And, and the other thing I've, you know, I think the thing about our partnership, because she's part of the business too, but her, I mean, she's a nurse and she's, she's done phenomenal in, in her career, but she's got so many other skills. And, and I don't know if this is, I see it even in a lot of really great women that are in professional speakers in business. They don't give themselves the credit they need. And I, I saw she, she's done some public speaking and I encouraged her. We actually to get out and, and actually get in front of the audience. And we did a program for a series of hospitals and mm-hmm. it was the CEO right down to the frontline nurses. And oh God, she was nervous. But she got she was awesome. And she told what I loved about her, she told the audience, she said, you know, this is really making me nervous. And That's you a great yeah, icebreaker. But they but they related to her. And so when I go to follow up with the with the, the client, what's the first question they ask me? How's Linda doing? We we did stuff for a company down in Virginia, and there are things that she got the men to do. They would admit to her, well, I didn't take my blood pressure medicine this morning. I mean, she became their confessor. <laughs> I could never get them to do that. They would never admit that to me. So she adds a whole different dynamic. Yeah. And it's, she's amazing, but you know, she went to Japan with me and that was a real step out. I mean, we'd never traveled that far to go to a foreign country where you don't even speak the language and they loved her. I mean, and she would, you know, we'd eaten the, the, the sushi and she would eat anything. I mean, she, I mean, literally there was stuff that had these little tentacles coming out of it. It's like, I'm not eating that. And they, but the Japanese people loved her. I mean, she was, it, it was really very adaptive and very, very adaptive. And, um, and like, I, I'll share one thing. It's the ability, you know, that was the other thing as leaders, you got to get out and challenge yourself. And we're on this train going into Tokyo from the airport. And I look up and it suddenly hit me. I looked at her and I said, babe, I said, all the signs are in Japanese. And she looks at me and she says, well, Greg, we are in Japan. I says, I thought there'd be a little English here. Yeah. I said, I have no idea how to get to our hotel. I know it. they said it was close to Tokyo Station, but Tokyo is like huge. <laughs> and she disappears. I don't know where she's going. She's, she's, and she comes back about 10 minutes later. She says, I found a lady. She speaks some English. And her husband's going to meet her at the train station. She said, he'll help us. And thank God, because Tokyo Station's just six million people a day go through this thing. Our train comes in, I didn't realize, at the fifth level. It's a fifth basement level. I would have never, we'd still be there today. To try to get out of that station with no English and get to, and then when you get to the surface, it's massive. So how would I even find the cabs? And then I didn't realize that, you know, 
I have no idea where my hotel is. And then, so this guy gets us to the service, gets us to the cab place. And he says, where's your reservation thing? And I, I give him the piece of paper. And he writes it up all down in app, Japanese. He says, Japanese cab driver, no understand English. <laughs> that would have been, I'm thinking, how would I have ever gotten to my, so thanks to Linda. Solution oriented. Yeah, and that's so that's that's again that's a leader, and she's not this rah rah in front leader, but she's that very quiet leader. So you know it was a great. In uh, fact, she thought she was going to be this wallflower. We go into this meeting, and I, it's a Japanese Petrochemical Association. The place is packed, and she thinks she's going to stand in the back of the room, and the host says, "No, no, 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 you, you guessed." I mean, she gets to sit right next to the master of ceremonies in front of the room. So, but uh, but then we had this little private reception afterwards and they said they fell in love with her because we had sushi and, and sake and all the other stuff. And so it was, it made a really great partnership, but what a, what an, again, it was the adventure of a lifetime. But, but one of the things that, you know, give you an idea how powerful that trip was. When I made the same statement I made to you, I put up the map of, they had no idea what West Virginia or Ohio really was. I put up the map showing the United States and who we were. And I, I mean, said, I had no idea when I moved to America. I, I saw like a, a, a map and I was like, oh, I just thought it was United States. I didn't realize there was actually states. And like, I don't yeah. know where the states are. <laughs> when I so, moved to America, I was so lost. I had no idea. And, and I wouldn't know if I went to, you know, even Japan. I know yeah. where Tokyo is. I don't know where everything is. So we put that map up. We should, they knew, now they know where Texas is. Yeah. They know where New York City is. And they know where Hollywood is. They, they got those three figured out. The rest of it is... <laughs> they got the three corners. Yeah. But we showed that. And we said, this is this is Shell Crescent. And I said, this little part of the country, at that point, it was producing about a third of the U.S. gas supply. As soon as I made that statement, the whole room grabbed their pens and they started writing like crazy. And they came up to me afterwards and they said, we had no idea where the gas was in Texas. So that whole group suddenly was opened up to an idea that, wow, we can actually locate here where the, where the energy is and where the market is. So, and it's really fascinating. We've seen even one Japanese company that's located in our area. He was one of the guys I said, what keeps you awake at night? And the plant manager's VP says, the difference between the dollar and the yen. I said, what? Where did that come from? He said, Greg, he says, at that point, three years ago, he says, we're getting 80% of our stuff from Tokyo. He said, so when that exchange rate changes negatively, he said, there's months I thought I made money and I'm losing money. And he's gradually shifted. And again, the Japanese understand this now. He's probably, right now, he's at least 60%, going to be soon close to 80% of his supplies are going to be coming from the region mm -hmm. of Tokyo. So that's good for the U.S. It's good for him, and it's actually good for his company. Now, they all that money that they spent shipping the cab of the truck over here, fully assembled, he's making his own cabs now. That's huge. That's jobs. He's, he's more than doubled. He's gone from 300 employees to 600 in the last three years. Oh, wow. Those are real-life jobs. And so the region won. The people win. He wins as a manager because he's making his profit – is higher and the company wins because now they're more profitable because they're not spending money on transportation they're actually spending money on 
making stuff here. So they're they're again they're getting their supplies regionally. So that's the advantage. And uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're seeing. I think uh, like my Subaru's Japanese car, most of it's made in the United States. So they figured out, but we gave them a reason to understand why. And the Japanese the trap trip was important for business, but it really changed from Linda and I, it really, it was amazing. I mean, it, just to, for us to be able to work together and, and she, like I said, she, she was phenomenal. So th- th- does that help? It does. No, it does absolutely help. Now I have a question though. I keep saying I have a question. I have a lot of questions. Who is Greg after 2020? Cause 2020 has been a year on steroids up and down like crazy. I don't even know how to describe it. I feel like we've experienced 10 years in one year, but yeah. Who is, Greg, uh, who is Greg after 2020? Good question. I think what, what I see, at least for the next few years, is what we've learned this year. And we've got half a dozen projects that have actually gone have advanced. I mean, we've had people sign leases and get ready to build stuff. So what we want to continue to see is that job growth in our region. But, you know, something kind of like the whole business with Nathan and Linda, when you do something and you do it for the right reason, when you do it because to help someone or to, to, because you just give a loving heart, you never know where things are going. And here's what we learned through the pandemic is we're worried about jobs and profitability. But what we didn't realize until the pandemic was we actually have the solution for climate change. And, you know, we got people who are talking about, wind and solar and everything and that's great there's nothing wrong with that stuff except that when i see a windmill or a solar or when i see a solar panel on the church roof i don't see clean energy i see dead chinese because i understand how that product was made it takes rare earth metals and those rare earth metals but iron solar panels do only about 20 to 30 percent efficient right oh there's a lot of other problems right and and, and it's, it's funny another one where i was asking one of my another one of these executives i said you know, keeps you awake at night. He said, well, part of our business is solar. And he says, my big problem is getting people to understand that solar panels don't work after dark. <laughs> it's <laughs> solar. I mean, I said, that's a problem. He says, yeah. He says, they can't understand why that when I put up a solar installation, why they need other energy. I mean, these are smart people. So to your point. Yeah. I mean, like I'm confused. Okay. Well, 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 if, now think how dramatic this is the green new deal. If you read that, and I have, 95% of that, it's all wind and solar. And I'm thinking, are they nuts? I mean, when it gets dark and the wind's not blowing, if you read the, the energy sources in that Green New Deal, the only, the only two that actually work 24-7 would be wave power and hydroelectric. Everything else goes away at some point. And if you don't have natural gas or something as a backup, you always need a plan B. Yeah. I mean, you know, when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, and up here in West Virginia, it's 10 degrees, there, we will be using renewables. We're going to be out there cutting wood and putting in the fireplace. I mean, yeah. that, if you're in New York City, you don't have that option. So, you know, that's part of what my mission is, is to let the world know from a truth standpoint is you can't do this. You can't even make that solar panel without oil and gas. And that's the hard part that I think a lot of our young people need to, it's easy to say, oh, let's, let's have an electric car and let's get rid of oil and gas. And you don't have your electric car. I mean, it's that basic. So 
so that's so what I but here's the rest of the story, which really is fascinating, is renewables aren't as green as everybody thinks, A, but more importantly, the challenge we have right now, even if that all worked, and even if we could reduce our greenhouse gases to neutral here in the United States, if they're right, and I don't know if they are or not, but let's assume that they're right, and let's assume if we don't cut our carbon, the mm-hmm. bad thing is going to happen by 2050. And I can understand why young people are concerned because 2050, I'm going to be really, really old. If but I'm, we're going to still be around. Well, but if I'm, but if I was 25, by 2050, I'm only 50. I mean, if the world, I mean, yeah. Really, really so I understand they're more concerned about the future in a hundred years than I am, except for my family. I mean, I'm, I'm still just, just as concerned, but the bottom line is nobody has last in 19, U.S. CO2 levels dropped 2.6%. We're using more natural gas, we're using renewables, we're doing a lot of other things. So we reduced our carbon in this country by 2.6%. That's really good. Nobody seems to want to talk about that, but it's the truth. And those are government numbers. China increased their CO2 emissions by 2.9. They totally undid everything we did. Now, unless we figure out how to help China and other Asian countries fix that problem. Doesn't matter. I mean, we might as well all have a good time, eat, drink, and be married because it's going to be over. I mean, if all we do is fix us, it's over, have a good time, you know, da da da. But here's how we how we fix it. Because we can manufacture cheap, we can actually it's, what we learned is if a manufacturing facility is built in Shell Crescent, it actually has a a much lower matter of fact, you were, you totally eliminate most of the carbon footprint because carbon footprint to get energy from Asia to China, carbon footprint for China to ship products 12,000 miles from Beijing to New York City or more. If it's if the energy's here and it's under the plant, you might have to ship the energy 50 miles. When you make the product, again, you're shipping it maybe 100 miles to the plants. And then those plants are shipping that same product within a 500 mile radius in one of the biggest economies in the world. We ran some quick numbers. We're looking at if a plant, if we shut down a plant in China and build it in the Shell Crescent USA, you could reduce that carbon footprint by 50 to 75% just by changing the location. location of it. So the solution to global warming, to climate change, is to manufacture A in the United States and preferably in the region we are, because it's even better here. So that's the fix. Nobody's got that. I mean, no matter what our new president does, you can't, he's not going to fix China. I mean, I mean, he's not going to talk to them. It's going to take more than that. And China's going to do what's going to be best for China. But we can compete now. We can actually make stuff cheaper here, make stuff better here, and actually reduce the carbon footprint and provide jobs and tax benefits. That's where I want to go in the next three to five years to get that happening. And then maybe at that point, I can come down here to Kiowa or go to Florida and chill most of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're absolutely welcome here in Florida. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Where can people connect with you, Greg? Can they find you on LinkedIn on your website? Where can people I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I don't, I'm on Facebook, but I I really, LinkedIn's a great place to go. My website is gregcazera.com. I'm on that. But if you want to learn more information about, what's going on with Shell Crescent and why, you know, all the hard, most of the data is out there on our website, but 
you can go to there's a lot of information there i was doing some deep research you guys and they're always up to date on their data on their comparison i'm a numbers person so i'm like i'm looking at all the charts and i'm like yes this is the kind of stuff that i like <laughs> what's there on the website we have a, we put out a new white paper in october that talks about the environmental advantage to being here so that's that's out there and we're working on several other some more hard data for that stuff. So yeah, shellcrestingusa.com, gregkazera.com, LinkedIn, and, you know, and if, you know, they're certainly welcome to reach out to you and you can connect us. So absolutely. So I will put all the connections on the show notes, you guys. So for my lazy listeners that don't want to type stuff up, you can just click on it. It's a click away. So you can do that. I feel like there's like a lot of mini lessons from this call. A lot of, you know, especially the power of dreaming and the whole story that you shared with us at the beginning. I definitely want to thank you for that. That's that's really amazing. And we did touch base on some other very important topics, you guys. So make sure to connect with Greg for any questions. He is very friendly. He'll get back to you right away, which I love it. And then you should definitely let him know to subscribe to his uh there's a weekly, you know, article that he sent out too. I, yeah, I'd, be happy to, I'd be happy to add him to that column because we do it yes. in, regionally in newspapers. There's some magazines to pick it up and some online people. So every, It's like a, 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 a weekly thing for me. So if I don't get one, I'll be like, okay, what, what's happening? Let me call him real quick. Like, is he okay? <laughs> Why have I not gotten like my, my article dosage for the week? <laughs> it's some really great, actually like up-to-date topics that he touches. It's everything that has to do with the business, with leadership, with life, touching about industry and economics. So it's really, really great articles. I love them myself. Greg, I have a, <laughs> I have a final question for you. What is your definition of success? Using the talents that God's given me. First, discovering those. And then using those to make the world a better place. If I can do that, what I want to hear when my life is over is, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's success, is making the world better, and using the talents that I've been given to do that. Okay, I like, that's not my final question. I have another follow-up question. What are like three things that you want to be known for? Like a legacy that you love to leave behind? I would say certainly being a good husband and a good father. And probably being a person of integrity, because that's important at the end of the day. And hopefully being someone that's, that's who'd have thought it was possible, that, that's changed the world in a better way. And it may be creating jobs, it may be cleaning up the environment, but those would be the three things that, that the work we've done has changed the planet, has made people's lives better and made the planet cleaner and healthier. I like it. Thank you. Like I said, I'll attach all the information where you can connect with Greg on the show notes. Greg, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you. I mean, appreciate all that you do. This is good stuff. I enjoy it. I have a ball. Absolutely. Thank you. And for you guys, make sure to tune in every week. We have new and awesome episodes just like this one every Tuesday. Have a great one. This podcast is a 6-7 Radius production. To learn more about 6-7 Radius, our services, and how we can help you strategize your marketing and increase your sales, click the service tab on connectwithromina.com.